right, so I'm going to read uh, the second half of chapter 5 um, from verse 7 through to verse 10. I think it is. Yep. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I've called this message this morning, After the Rain Has Fallen. After the rain has fallen. And I'd like to explore this portion with you, and in particular this image that James uses of the rain that falls to water the crop. But this really, I said last week, this is a, a turning point in this letter. Uh, up until this point, James has been talking to middle class, wealthy people, and um, he's addressed them as you rich, and he's had a whole lot of stuff to say to the rich. And um, he's, he knows that it's likely that they would be the first, pers- first people likely to, to read this letter, because they would have been the privileged people in the community, they would have got to, to read the letter first. But he he knows also that over a period of time, everyone will get to read this letter. And so now he, he, this is the turning point. He starts to address ordinary people um, in in the church. He he starts to address the poorer people in the church. And uh, he's got some things to say to them. And this is what he says to them. He says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord comes. And last week I encouraged you and said that uh, one of the things, the greatest test that we can pass as Christians is learn to endure Ill treatment from other people with humility, with dignity, not to strike back. And that's one of the, the greatest trials that we go through in the church. It's not necessarily trials from, believe, from those outside of the church, but trials that we have to endure from people inside the church. That's one of the greatest trials we have to learn to overcome. When people treat us unjustly, and uh, we have to learn to respond with the Holy Spirit and let God do a deep work in us through that. So... James is really, in this portion, is repeating some things that he said in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, he said he encouraged us to be patient, in verse uh, 2, to pray, in verse 5, to handle our temptations correctly, to be compassionate to the needy. He addressed all of those things in chapter 1, and now he returns to that same theme of persevering under trials, and he, encouraged these, he encourages these poorer people in the church with the same thing. He says, they, again, says, be patient, in verse 7. And he says, he calls them to prayer. He says uh, in verse 13, pray. And he also encourages them to help each other to recover from this time of trial and testing. So I'd like to start by looking at this thing of being patient until the coming of the Lord, that first little verse. And we looked at that last week, and I, I said to you that sometimes we have to wait for our vindication, for God to vindicate us. Sometimes we have to wait until Jesus comes back for, for complete vindication. And um, there's no guarantees that we're going to be vindicated for anything right now. Sometimes we might have to wait until Jesus comes back. And we have to be prepared to wait like that if necessary. But the word here that is used for the Lord's coming is a word called, a word parousia. Have you heard that word before? In the church we speak about parousia. What, what that is, it refers to the, the physical coming of Jesus, the second coming of Christ physically that he's coming back. So when you hear that word, it's actually talking about Jesus coming back in the second coming, as a coming back in in the clouds at glory. And so it's a a sense this verse is pointing to that day 
and saying we might have to wait for vindication until that day. And James, it's also said in this book, there's been this theme of counting trials as a privilege, which is hard for us to get our heads around, that James would say, count it pure joy when you go through trial and suffering, when you go through hard times. And what he's trying to say to us in this portion is it's actually a privilege to go through injustice. And I I know that sounds weird. I'm not saying for a moment that it's a a thing that we enjoy. I'm not saying for a moment that it's a thing that um, we would uh, welcome. But I am saying that James is saying to us that even when we go through injustice, it does us good if we learn to handle it well. Why do I say that? Because in the Old Testament, there are numerous portions that say the same thing. Psalm 119, for example, in verse 67 says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your words. You are good to me and and teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, that I might learn your ways. And this is the point that I've been trying to say over and over again in this book of James. There are some things, there are some lessons that we learn only in hard times. Only in hard times. There are some lessons that we learn in good times, and those are different challenges, but there are some lessons that we can only learn in hard times. And that's why Acts 14.22 says, Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and tell them that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. There's something that we lay hold of in God's kingdom that comes to us as we learn to walk through life and endure hard times with dignity, under trial, to rejoice in those, God does something amazing in us when that happens. And so, one of the trials that I spoke to you last week is the trial that comes from fellow Christians, members that are from our own Christian family that give us trouble. And we have to learn to walk with dignity through those trials. But I want to look at this verse in a a slightly different way this morning. We don't necessarily always have to wait until Jesus comes back. There is a sense that God can also intervene in our lives right now. The kingdom of God is always at hand, and the second coming of Jesus is very near. Paul lived with that in his life, that Jesus was coming back soon. And so in a sense, we can understand this verse also, that there's an anticipation of the final coming of the Lord in our lives, and we can experience God intervening in our lives in a daily, on a daily basis. There's, a, there's that, uh, when, when we, I've said this before, when we experience healing in our bodies right now, it's a flash of eternal glory. The, the fullness of what is coming intervenes into our present reality, and we are healed now. And one day there will be no suffering. There will be complete healing in, in glory in eternity. But we can experience that right now when eternity breaks into our present reality and God touches our body, and we're healed right now. You hear what I'm saying? And so we don't always have to wait until that final day. And Jesus' life was, was, was an example of that. In a sense, when Jesus was raised from the dead, God vindicated him. God vindicated his life. God, it was the seal of approval on Jesus' ministry that he was raised from the dead. But even Jesus is waiting for that final day. What do I mean by that? Because the scripture says, one day, all knees will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is still waiting for that final day. 
Because up until this point, not every tongue has recognized Christ. Not every knee has bowed, bowed to him, to his authority. There, there are many that have, but not all. And so even Jesus is waiting with anticipation for that final day. And even Jesus said, I don't know the final day. Only the Father knows the final day. But Jesus is waiting too for that final day when every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It's an amazing thing. And so even Jesus, who has received vindication from his Father, is waiting for that day when he will receive final vindication. That every tongue will bow and every knee will will confess every tongue will bow. Okay, I'm sorry, whatever, you know what I'm saying. Okay, I got it the wrong way around, but anyway. And so, what he does here in this verse is that um, James chooses two Old Testament characters to explain what he's saying. And the first one he makes reference to is Job. And I would like to take a look at Job over the next couple of weeks, because I think the book of Job is one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. It's one of the most controversial books in the Bible, and some people have had really interesting theories about Job. And I would like to have a look and give you some perspective that I believe God wants us to hear out of the book of Job. You know, Job could have been summarized in four chapters, really. If you read the story of Job, it could have been a very short book. What is the majority of the book devoted to? Job trying to handle his friends. Those guys that are his friends that come and counsel him. And so actually it's your sin that has caused this. And it's this that has caused this. This is wrong in your life. And actually the majority of the book is, is uh, devoted to Job trying to deal with his relationship with these friends who are telling him a whole lot of stuff and yet he knows in his heart what God has told him. And that, isn't that how life is sometimes? <laughs> we have revelation from God. We understand and we have to handle everybody else and their opinions. And they come and they tell us this is what God's saying and, and you have to stand for what you believe. Yeah, that's the story of Job. And he also talks about Elijah. And it's two examples in the Old Testament of where God does intervene now. And God does step into the life of Job, and God does step into the life of Elijah and intervenes for them and brings amazing breakthrough for them. What does that mean for you and I? Well, I think it means simply this. It means that when you've gone through trials in your life, and you've handled them with dignity, and you've trusted God, and you've not murmured, and you've not moaned, and you said, God, I'm trusting you for my vindication, and you've kept quiet, you've zipped your, all those things we talked about, you haven't moaned, you haven't done any of that stuff, and you've cried out to God, this is the possibility that you are moving towards, that God can step in and vindicate you. Man, that's a brilliant thing. When God intervenes in our lives, it's too marvelous for words because we we know we haven't done it ourselves. Yeah, we haven't tried to make it happen. We haven't manipulated the circumstances to make it happen. When God steps into our lives, that is amazing, marvelous thing. And it's like the psalmist who says, uh, I've quoted this before, weeping might endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, Psalm 30 verse 5. And amazingly, one of the scriptures that I chose Uh, Eunice quoted this morning in terms of their prayer times. 1 Peter 5 verse 10 said this, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Isn't that amazing? And I believe that this church right now is going through a time of God restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing us. He is. And it's a beautiful thing to see. 
I've been thinking a little bit around prophecy uh, in, the, in the last while. And um, one of the prophetic words that Helen brought to this church five years ago, uh, I didn't thank her for at the time. In fact, I was quite irritated that she brought it. And it was this word, when we were still meeting at Sir Columbus School, it was this word where Satan, um, well, where Jesus says to Peter, he says, Satan is asked to sift you. But the you there is plural. So although Peter is taking the prophetic word, it's for all the people, all the church. And the word was, Satan is asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will, together, will, he will come and he'll establish you himself. Christ will establish the comfort you, etc., etc. Things I've just quoted. And so in the life of this church, for those of you that have been around, when we moved into this building, for three years, all hell broke loose. Literally, all hell broke loose. And we're like, what is going on? Thank you for that prophetic word. But you know what God was doing? God was sifting. God was shaping. God was getting some rubbish out. God was saying, no, I love this church too much to allow that stuff to continue. And so we went through this period. And now, I said to, to, to some of the leaders this weekend, I think it was there, I can't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I did say this, that from last August, from the, after the summer holidays last year, I felt something has changed spiritually over this church. And I'm not being all spooky. I'm just saying God has moved us out of that place of going through that sifting, shifting time to establishing us, to restoring us, to confirming us, to strengthening us. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah? And so I want to encourage you with that. It's a, it's the, the best years literally are ahead, and God is doing a good thing. In other words, all I'm trying to say is that in all our lives, God can step in sovereignly, and the trial is over. It's over. And the new thing has come. And this is the most brilliant part for me about James, about Job. In, in uh, Job 41.12, right at the end of the book, it says, The Lord blessed his latter days more than his beginning. Now, whatever your opinion about Job, this is the point. At the end of the story, he's in a better position than he was at the beginning, and God has restored in an amazing way his whole life. God intervenes. It's the same with Elijah, isn't it? You know the story of Elijah, the prophets of Baal, abating Elijah, giving him a hard time. He feels like he's, he's the one who's standing on behalf of God, and he is, and they're scoffing him, they're mocking him. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, he cries out, in verse 37, he cries out to God, he says, Answer me, O Lord, that this people might know that you are our God, and that you have turned their heart back to you, and then the fire falls, and it comes down. That's God's stepping in. There's nothing that he could have done to make that happen, and it says this... The, the burnt offering is consumed and the wood and the stones and the dust and all the water around the offering that it was in the trench is consumed. There's no, no natural explanation for that other than God stepped in and did an amazing thing. So I'm trying to encourage you this morning that God can step in at any time and He can do an amazing thing in your life. And so He uses this farming illustration which the people would have understood very well. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And James is using this farming illustration to make his point a little more clear. When a farmer sows seeds, he doesn't expect it to sprout immediately. You know that. 
And James is saying if that's true at a physical level, how much more is it not true in the level of the Holy Spirit? In other words, obedience on one day doesn't necessarily bring the breakthrough. It's obedience over a period of time. Patient obedience to the Word of God when you can't see anything happening, knowing in your heart that God is doing something under the surface that is going to bear fruit, and waiting on God, like we heard last week when Alan read that scripture of Isaiah 41, waiting on God is not waiting passively. Waiting on God is like waiting like a farmer. A farmer waits with expectation. A farmer waits knowing something is going to happen. And when he sees the fruit come up, he's not surprised and saying, oh, look at that, grapes. Just like magic. No, no, no. Why? Because he planted the seed, he's, he's been tending the seed, he's been tending the vine or the maize crop or whatever it is, and he knows if he's patient and he just lets God do what God needs to do and he waits with expectation, the fruit will come up and he's prepared to wait. I want to ask you for your life, for my life, for the life of this church, are we prepared to wait for God so that the right fruit will come up? I've seen this, when you try and make it happen yourself, when you try and generate the fruit too quickly, what comes up? Weeds. Not good fruit. And then you have to try and undo it. No, let's just wait for God. Let's just wait for God to bring up the fruit. They that wait upon the Lord, Isaiah 41, 31, they shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. And so that's why I call this message After the Rain Has Fallen, because Before the harvest can come, the rain has to fall. Yeah? And the rain has to fall so that something can happen underneath the ground where nobody sees. And it says here in this portion that there's the early rain, the middle rain, and the latter rain. And all three things, all those kinds of rains are necessary for the crop to be the most productive. So James, why does he use that? Because all the people in Palestine would have known the weather pattern. Everyone living in Jerusalem, where he was the pastor, would have known the the weather pattern. The early rains came in roughly October to early November, and that was crucial because it softened the ground and they could plow and all that stuff. And then they needed more rain, and the heavy rain came from December through to February, roughly, and that was the heavy rain that germinated the crop. And then during March to April, there was additional rain, which was light rain, which softened the earth so that they could harvest the crop. And all of those things were essential. And those three rains, are, if you look in the Old Testament, they refer to often. Deuteronomy eleven fourteen, He will send the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the late rain, that you might gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Lastly, uh, Joel two twenty three: Be glad, children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the late rain as before. So the people would have known exactly what James was talking about. It's a very easily understood illustration for them. And his point is simple. There's patience required to go through all of the process so that the fruit can germinate in our lives and there can be a good harvest in our lives. And so I want to say to you this morning, my first point, and I only have three or four, But my first point, every trial has a built-in design. Every trial has a built-in design. And what James is saying is just as rain is necessary to produce a natural crop, our response, our dignified response to the hard things that we go through is necessary so that there can be fruit at a spiritual level. 
In other words, if there's no rain, there will be no crop. If there's no trial, there can be no supernatural blessing in our lives. The rain is in God's hands. Matthew 5.45 says, The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. But the rain falls with a purpose. It always falls with a purpose. That's what Isaiah says. That's what I quoted this morning. Or if you think of Noah, the rain fell for a purpose in that, in, in that uh, instance because God was bringing judgment. Isaiah says the rain never falls without purpose. And in the same way, the Word of God never is sown without purpose. It always achieves what God has for it. And so James is saying trials have a built-in design. This is the problem, that you and I are not bright enough always to see the design. That's the problem, isn't it? If we could just understand perfectly why we're going through this thing, it would all be easy and make sense, but that wouldn't require faith. And so we have to find out, we have to ask God, we have to say, what is the, tr- what is the design? What, what are you doing in this thing, God? Because I believe this, Romans 8, 28, I believe it with all of my heart, all things work together for good, for those that are called according to the purpose and the will of God. All things work together for good. The sovereign hand of God is over your and my life, that brings such assurance, that brings such peace to us, that we can endure all things because all things work together for good. And so we have to understand, we say, God, by your grace, even though I don't understand, show me the design of this thing that you're taking me through. And this is the challenge that James is bringing to us, is that when the world goes through tough times, what do they do? They gripe, they complain, they get bitter, and James has been trying to encourage us that you and I as Christians as the called out ones, we need to trust God for a different response. And the different response has to be, Jesus, show me the design. Jesus, please, I want to use this as an opportunity to grow in a way that I wouldn't have grown before. Help me. That should be our response, isn't it? Not the same response as the world. And so surely, just as his his picture here, surely, just as a farmer waits for the crop to mature, so too we have to be patient and wait so God can produce a crop in us. And you know from James chapter 1, it says, it brings us to a place of maturity. Perseverance produces fruit that has to go through this process. But James is also hinting at this little thing here. He's saying, if you have managed to not moan, to not complain, if you have managed by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to say, God, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, you are getting closer and closer to that point where the latter rain is going to fall and God is going to break in. That's what he's saying. So I'm urging you, I'm encouraging you, whether you are having a mountaintop experience right now and you are experiencing just the abundant provision of God, I rejoice with you, and you know the word says, every good thing that happens in the church, we need to celebrate with every single person that is having a mountaintop experience. At the same time, we have compassion for those that are going through the valley. So I'm not concerned. If you're, if you're on the mountaintop this morning, I rejoice with you and I want to I I celebrate with you. If you are going through the valley this morning, I want to stand with you and say, Jesus knows what you're going through. And if you're somewhere in between, that's also cool. <laughs> God uses all things in our lives. Isn't that right? And so basically, this picture here of rain falling is James's way of talking about the process of going through suffering and trial. And so the farmer who hopes for a good harvest has to wait until the process is finished. And so sometimes the rain is heavy. Sometimes it's light. But we have to wait until the last rain 
has fallen. After the rain has fallen. Why? Because the testing of our faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work in our lives. And here's the first reason. This is first sub-point, well, first point. Why does God want us to go through this thing? James gives us the, the answer. He says, God wants to establish our hearts. God wants to establish your hearts, my heart. That is why James gives us, tells us we go through these things. He wants to establish our hearts. And actually the word they establish means to stand with dignity in your heart. To stand with dignity. To stand with your, your head held high. Not to get all bowed down and broken, but to stand with dignity in the trial. That's what it means for God to establish your heart. Every single one of us to stand with dignity. Why? Because you and I are becoming more and more like Jesus. You and I are being changed from one degree of glory to another. And we are becoming more like Jesus as we move from one level of triumph to another level of trial. I, I wish I could put it more gently. I wish I could put it more appetizingly. But this is the truth. This is our lives. Our lives are a series of trials and series of triumphs. And we move from one triumph to another trial at a different level with a different measure of grace and a, and a, def, a different uh, knowledge of the power of the Word of God and how He transforms us. We move with a different level to a different level with all of that we've learned and then there's another trial that comes. And we have to pass it again. And we have triumph. And we have a new measure of the knowledge of God and His power and how He intervenes and what He does and how He's changed us. And then we move to another level and another trial. I wish I could say life was not like that. <laughs> you and I know that it is. Let's just be honest about it. That's why I can't get my head around people who say that in the Christian life there's no suffering because it is just so unreal. It is just not real. It's just pretending like an ostrich that life does not have hard times. It's, it's, it's fantasy. You and I, as, as reformed, charismatic people who want the power of God to come, we have to have a theology of suffering. What's going to get us through our lives? And joyful suffering. <laughs> yes? It's the only thing. After the rain has come, after the trial, God can break in and intervene. I want to I encourage you. Well, I love to read um, books. I love to read particularly books about other great people. You know why? Because there's a common thing. If you look at great sportsmen, you look at great people in history, politicians, or great people that have achieved anything in their lives. You know what the common denominator is? All of them have had something in their lives that they've had to overcome. There's a great test that comes. All the great characters of the Bible, every single one of them, there's a great test. They have to overcome it. And as they overcome it, God uses that somehow to take them to another level where He can use them because they've, they've learned to trust God at the deepest level of their heart. And I find that incredibly encouraging. And so, you know, that's why I say if you've been through a hard time in the last couple of years, perhaps you've been trusting God for a job for years, perhaps you've just had other things that have been a trial for you, 
I want to rejoice with you. Because you know what? why? Because that thing is taking you to another level in God that you would never have enjoyed if you hadn't gone through it. Amen. That is, that is. And so Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4.16, at the end of his life, he says this, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. <laughs> Isn't that a great heart, eh? All my friends have deserted me, but I actually don't, God, don't hold it against them. And then he carries on in verse 17, he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and that all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He says at the end of the day, everyone deserted me, but God did not, and I stood, and now he's broken through on my behalf. What an amazing thing. And for all of us, it can be the same. Your friends, you might feel like your friends have deserted you and the pressure of the thing that you've been going through, but God doesn't desert you. And if you continue to stand with joy in your heart, what great joy will you endure, endure, enjoy after the trial is over? That's why I'm trying to encourage you to stand. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. So I'd like to finish with the story of Martin Luther that you probably know. And I'm glad that uh, Luther passed this trial, because if Luther didn't pass this trial, we would not be sitting here today. And that's why I also want to encourage you, you don't know what the passing of the trial in your life will unlock for other people. You don't know. Luther couldn't possibly have known what God would do through him, through this little trial, well, this big trial that he, that he passed. You know the story? He uh, st- started speaking against the Catholic Church, and they got really upset with him. So in 1521, there was a thing called the Diet of Worms. It's always a fascinating word. I don't know why it was the Diet of Worms, but it was the Diet of Worms. It was a conference, and uh, in that he, was, he had to defend himself in front of the Catholic Church, and he said these famous words. He said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. <laughs> That's all he said in his defense. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And so these people said, said uh, to keep him safe, they needed to move him to another place. And some of his friends, quite by accident, found out what they were really trying to do was to kill him. And they were going to murder him on the journey. And so his friends organized for him to be kidnapped. And so they kidnapped him. And at the time, everyone didn't know what was going on. And they thought it was a tragedy that actually it was, it was the people that wanted to kill him that had kidnapped him. Actually, it was his own friend. And they, they took him to the Wartburg Castle, and over the next 11 months, he translated the Bible into German, and literally, the world has never been the same since he did that. It transformed everything. Having the Scripture in a language that was for the common people, not in Latin anymore, that they could understand, and they began to read the Scripture, and the revelation of Galatians and Romans, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, that no man can boast, came to the church again and literally transformed the face of the planet. If if Luther hadn't passed that test, we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. Why do I say that? So that you and I can take courage in whatever trial you're going through. You don't know the passing of that trial, what it's going to affect other people in your sphere of influence. You don't know this past the trial. And so I'll close with this. Because... Not only does it establish our hearts, but James also says there is precious fruit. There is precious 
fruit when we pass the trial. And I believe there comes a day in our lives that we can sing, we can proclaim just like Song of Solomon, Behold, the winter is past, the rain is over, it's gone, the flowers appear on the earth, and a time of singing has come. I believe a time of singing has come. I want to prophesy over this church. I believe a time of singing is already upon us. It has already come. We are beginning to enjoy it. And I particularly like this time of year because it's towards the end of winter. (laughs) And I'm always glad when the winter ends. But there will be a time when all winters end. There will be no more winter. Every trial will end. What a day that will be when every trial is over. It will be a spectacular day. The scripture says it will be like a day like no other. A spectacular day, but there will be one cloud in the sky. And it will be the cloud that Jesus comes back on, on that day. And that's what John says in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And there's this amazing picture of Jesus coming back on that day to end every winter, to end every trial, to end all suffering. And we look forward to that with all of our hearts. I want to say to you that Jesus, that we felt so, we feel so intimately in worship, we feel the presence of God every time we gather in small groups or whatever, that sense when you just know God is there by the power of His Spirit. On that day, we won't have to wait for that sense anymore because we will see Him with our very eyes. We won't need faith to believe anymore because we will see Him with our very eyes. What a day that will be. All will see Him. I'm looking forward to that day. I said to Helen on Friday night, I was in such pain with my shoulder for the first time in my life. I've I've said to Helen on Saturday morning, if I had died and gone to heaven last night, I would have been happy. Seriously. (laughs) I don't know what childbirth is like, but I think I had a pretty close experience of what childbirth must be like. Yeah, right. There's this longing in all of our hearts for that day. And when John finishes the book in Revelation 22.20, he says this, He who testifies to all these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And I want to encourage you, as I want to ask the musicians to come up, and we're going to worship some more and to celebrate the goodness of God. That we do look forward to that day when Jesus comes back with an expectation in our hearts. That we are prepared to stand with patience and to do all things with joy until that day comes. But we live also with this expectation that God can intervene in our lives at any time. It's not dependent on our response. In some senses it is. It's dependent on His sovereign grace in our lives. But always and everywhere, with all things, we we patiently endure that God, God can come and do what He needs to do in our lives. Amen? I trust that you're encouraged. I trust that you, uh, whether you're experiencing heavy rain, whether you're experiencing light rain, whatever you're experiencing right now, that you would stand with joy in your heart because God is bringing the fruit. Yes, and the time of singing is coming. The time of a new thing is coming. Let's stand and worship with all of our hearts.